The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant, 7 to 10 a.m. Five minutes past nine, you're with SFM 104 to 107. What did you miss in the last hour? Well, you missed a great conversation, I have to say, around the look and the focus on psychedelics in medicinal use, particularly in uh, when we look at the passing of people, people who are dealing with cancer and the like. A really profound conversation, actually. Before that, we also found out what do we hope from our Minister of Finance when it comes to the finance speech this week. And we started our chatting to a couple of youngsters from around the country who have just returned from Antarctica. And what a wonderful story that was as well. Nevertheless, at six minutes past nine, it's time for us to go into our guest presenter. Our guest presenter today is a man who is an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, and uh, he really has a fantastic project on the way, which we will talk about in a short while. But before we get to that fantastic project, we're going to start off with his first choice song. And there we have it. The first song, our choice of songs. Uh, sorry about that sudden break. Uh, for our guest presenter and he's a man that I had a conversation with a few days ago after reading his book How to Start a Side Hustle, a playbook for a new economy. But he is a fascinating conversationalist. He has uh, some fascinating slides up his or p- things up his sleeve and he started a fund which is going to support young entrepreneurs as well and we'll find out about that. Nick Haramboulos, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So taking us uh, way back with the choice of song, Louis Armstrong, La Vie en Rose. Yes. Um, I just absolutely love the um, grand nature of that song. And his, <laughs> his voice is just like there's nothing like it on earth. What do you mean by the grand nature of that song? It just it feels like um, a he- from a hedonistic time, right? Like yeah. the music sounds indulgent and the way he sings sounds indulgent. I just really enjoy it. So I'm going to go into your book, and there's so many different angles to it. And obviously, uh, how to start a side hustle, and we need to start questioning what a side hustle is. And you do talk about that. But I I think I'm going to start slightly differently. When I look at your list of favorite, um, your books and your movies, Mm -hmm. your book is an Asian book, Lu Shi Ching. Yeah. uh, And I'm afraid I hope I get that right. the Three-Body Problem. Yes. Your, your favorite movie of all time is Jiro Dreams of Sushi, another Asian. <laughs> and then in your book on how to start, start a side hustle, you talk about um, the famous Ikigai, which I've heard about and read about in various different incarnations. Mm. And I was fascinated to see that you decided on Ikigai as well. So mm. what is the passion for um, Asian thinking Asian creativity, but I suppose also when I look at Ikigai, Asian philosophy as well. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I actually personally haven't even noticed that um, tie that binds those things together, only now that you've pointed it out. <laughs> um, there, there's definitely this dedication to craft. And I think that 
um, Asian cultures have a significantly more long-term view of life and everything, and it, it plays very much into my worldview. Um, the reason Three Body Problem is my particularly favorite book, it's a trilogy, but it speaks uh, to millions of years into the future. What, what does humanity look like? How do we exist? Uh, where are we? And I think that in 2021, we're all very stuck in today and very mm. caught up in the feelings of today. Whereas a movie like Euro Dreams of Sushi, um, it might not be my favorite movie of all time, but it is the film I rewatch at least once a year because it's a movie, uh, a documentary about a Michelin star sushi chef who has been making sushi for 70 years. Hmm. If you're listening to this, think about anything you've done for more than 10 years. I, I honestly can't. I can't yeah. think of anything I've done for 10 years every single day. And that's how you create mastery. That's how you create a life of living, is by dedicating yourself to something. And the Asian cultures seem to have it right, whereas my, my career is just a whole bunch of job hopping because I'm not really certain on where I want to go in life. So there is that attraction of just being dedicated to a craft. And even if that craft changes, just being dedicated to it, being patient, yeah. being consistent. Those things I value, and the older I get, the more I value them. I think also if you talk about um, something like that and you, you, 70 years of honing your craft, A, there has to be an idea that it is not simply the case of getting good at it and once you're good at it, you're good at it, that, that it is in fact a life long learning. The other thing, of course, is this idea of the long term. Now, in so much of the work that we do, if we're thinking about profit, we think about the short term. But if we think about purpose, we're thinking about the long term. How important is that for you? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. And again, this, um, uh, this perspective has only come with maturity because what's interesting to me is if you look at the businesses that are absolutely the leading in the world, they think of profit as long term. And the shining light of that is Amazon. Um, for mm. decades, Amazon has reinvested every single stitch of their profit into growing their business. The shareholders are bought into it. They don't expect big dividend payouts. Sure, yeah. Jeff Bezos has become a bajillionaire, but that's beside the point because the business itself is actually running on minimal profit margins. I mean, there was a period in their history where they were running off a 0.1% profit margin and their shareholders kept investing and their price kept going up. So I think we've been trapped on the smaller scale into thinking that there's this rat race that, you know, we must get the most stuff. But yes. that doesn't necessarily mean um, that profit is stuff. Profit can be reinvested, and this applies to us on a micro scale, right? If mm. you've got extra time, that shouldn't be wasted. It should be reinvested. If you've got extra cognitive ability, it shouldn't be wasted. It should be reinvested. And we, we do waste a lot of our time day to day by frivolous, irrelevant things like binge watching TV because we have nothing better to do with our lives. So what does Ikigai mean for you? This is a tricky one because I, I'm not entirely sure that every single person does have a calling. Um, and so Ikigai is that idea that everyone has this one thing that they should be doing. And I actually host my own podcast called The Curious Cult Podcast, where I just obsessively talk to incredible people about their curiosity. And one of the questions I ask them is, do you believe that everybody, every single person has a single purpose? And it is one of the most interesting questions for life in philosophy. And personally, I don't believe that's true. I think we get too stuck on the idea that I'm destined for something. Mm -hmm. But 
you, in your 20s, you think that the only important um, moments in your life are between 20 and 30. Then in your 30s, you understand that you've got another 50 years to do whatever it is that you want to do. So I like to consider decades. Um, you know, you've got to plan in decades. What does the next 10 years hold for you? What do you want to hone? What do you want to learn? What do you want to do? Um, because if you don't think decades and plan decades, you get caught up in the day-to-day, and then your ikigai gets lost. Um, and really, for me, the ikigai can change. It's very contextual, very about right now. What is your ikigai for today? And that's okay, too. Like, you can change and be different people. And it's certainly a mix of mission, passion, uh, pr- profession, vocation. I'm looking at the diagram you have, but it, it's a joining up of all those things, the passion, what you love, the mission, what the world needs, but also what you love, the vocation, what you could be paid for, the profession, what you could be good at. And all of that comes together as the ikigai. Now, I have to say, Nick, so I, I started reading How to Start a Side Hustle, and I have to say I laughed because when I had a full-time job, <laughs> when I was heading up an organization, one of the things that I discovered was was the idea of the side hustle. And I didn't have the time for a side hustle, but certainly I had uh, members in my crew who had side hustles. Um, now, there are times where a side hustle is ethical and there are times where a side hu- hustle can be absolutely unethical. I mean, I remember getting an email from a colleague of mine in China saying, oh, um, there's this amazing project that's come my way and it turned out that it was someone that I was working with who was doing it. So that was yeah. felt extremely unethical because I didn't yeah. know about it. So what is a side hustle and when is it ethical and when is it unethical? So I like to explain to people in my perspective that a side hustle is something that adds income to your existing income stream. It's not a full-time gig. It's not a startup. Startups are things you do full-time where you go out to raise a lot of money and you spend 20 hours developing it and it grows into this huge thing. Side hustles should be patiently, consistently adding to your bottom line. Um, And that, for me, could be anything. So the ethical version of this is you are working as a lawyer, but you speak six languages, and on the side, you teach one of your languages to someone online. There's nothing unethical about that. You're not competing with your law firm. You're not um, taking skills you've learned from them and selling them somewhere else to a competitor. Um, So that's the ethical way to do it. There are also side hustles that are like investing in stocks. If they pay you a dividend, they're adding to your bottom line. So that's a side hustle, and you slowly grow your stock portfolio. Um, You have to follow, I like to tell people, to pivot towards the thing they're they're good at. Don't pivot away from the things you're good at. Um, Mm. But back to the ethical thing, um, every single person who is employed needs to look at their employment contract, uh, look at the fine print, and see what the terms are for you building things outside of your work, if your work has given you a laptop and you build things on that laptop, even if it's outside of your, their time, it's likely that they own the thing that you're building. Um, obviously, don't ever build anything inside of office hours. Um, but the flip side of that is we have moved into this new economic perspective of the world that yeah. employers need to understand that it's really hard to make it out. It's really hard to have one salary for most yeah. people in the world. So instead of trying to hamstring your staff and force them into this old generational way of looking at the world, why not embrace the side hustle idea and tell them that they can do something as long as it's not competitive? That you don't know what they're going to bring back to their job because they've got this interest in languages or in hardware building or whatever. 
it might value and benefit your business too. But equally, just from a fundamental perspective, you cannot tell your staff that if you're not paying them enough, they can't go find more work somewhere else. It just, it isn't ethical anymore. And we've learned in 2020 and now still this year, no jobs are safe, no companies are safe, no incomes are safe. We need to diversify for financial freedom and financial security. You know, it does raise the biggest question of all. And I suppose that when you're talking about side hustles, you're talking about elements of trust. Yeah. Um, and the role of trust in society. I mean, you're quite right. No one can survive on one job unless they are uh, Jeff Bezos. You know, that's yeah. just quite clear. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know when he's going to realize that enough is enough is enough. Too much yeah. is also not, <laughs> like, yeah. not yeah. part there of a good thing. on both ends, absolutely. Part of trust is part of um, self-care. And we're going to go to a break, but you do raise self-care um, in your book. And I, I found that really interesting and really valuable because I think we have forgotten how to care for ourselves in a world which is about work in so many different ways. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, I cover something called the sacrifice fallacy that we've been tricked into believing that we have to sacrifice our mental and physical health to build anything of value. And I want to debunk that. That's just not true. You can be sane and safe and happy and healthy and still build amazing things. And again, look at how Jeff Bezos looks. He looks like a, literally a billion dollars because he trains and he's healthy and he's fit. He's mentally focused. Um, so this is an important topic. We're chatting to Nick Haramboulos. He is an entrepreneur. He is an author. He's a speaker. He's also the man who truly understands the side hustle. And he's written a fabulous book called How to Start a Side Hustle. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. We're talking to the author, Nick Haramboulos, and if you do have any questions about him and his book and questions about what it means to create a side hustle, then now's the time to WhatsApp us and you can do so. Yep, it's working. 0614104107. You can also SMS us on 41391. We'd love to hear from you. So, Nick, we have a specific listener. His name is Dr. Phil Mahuma, and he is a doctor at UP University, but he's also a family physician. And what we love about him is that he tests his colleagues on the show every Monday morning. So my question to you is, what kind of a question are you going to ask Dr. Phil so that he can test his colleagues with it this week? <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm, I'm challenging you. Michelle, I'm really sorry. You, the first part of what you said broke up completely. Okay. So all I was saying was we have a, a colleague, not a colleague, we have a listener, Dr. Phil Mahuma. He's a great yes. listener. And Phil is a doctor and also lecturer at UP. But what he does is he loves our Sunday morning guest presenter slot. Mm -hmm. And he tests his colleagues on a Monday to okay. see whether they've listened. So I'm suggesting that you put out the question for him. <laughs> <laughs> the question I would ask is if they're paying attention, they should understand what the sacrifice fallacy is. So ask them, what is the sacrifice fallacy and what does it mean to you? What is the sacrifice fallacy and what does it mean to you? And I'll give you a clue. It's around the fact of self-care. What does that mean? Now, Nick, um, we do have your second choice of song. But before we go to that second choice of song, I want to briefly ask you something about the book where you talk about um, ego. Yeah. And I loved reading that because also in our conversation today, 
Um, we were talking about ego as well a little earlier here on the show mm. and the relationship between spirituality and ego and ego as the opposite of spirituality. Talk to us about how you perceive ego. Uh, yeah, so one of my favorite authors is a guy named Ryan Holiday and his, one of his books is called Ego is the Enemy and I'm angry that he came up with that phrase because <laughs> it's just so good. Um, and I think there are times when positive ego drives you forward, but for a lot of us, negative ego completely drives us into the ground. Um, so for me, there is this external pressure that society puts on us to be a certain way and act and do certain things and achieve certain levels of success in comparison to other people. Mm-hmm. And comparison is the thief of joy. And we're only comparing ourselves so that we can prop our own egos up. And the minute that I understood that I can build things without being egotistical and, you know, learn to apologize and sincerely mean it and how quickly that resolves problems. Um, the minute I really just got to grips with my ego, um, I, everything became easier. Everything in my life just became easier. And I was just listening to the end of your segment with the um, psilocybin guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, reportedly this is a big part of what the psychedelic experience does is it helps you come to terms with your ego so that you don't feel like you need to feed it constantly and this is the world we're in the more we try and feed our egos the less successful we feel because you know ego is not a really good way to define your success because it's never fulfilled and certainly never to feel that confident in yourself as well yeah. it's nine twenty-five. we want to go into your second song satellite rise against tell us about great it. Um, this is my absolute favorite rock band i don't know if it's ever been played on safm before um, but it is a band filled with vegans who do not drink um, and do not do drugs. They are like a straight edge band and they're just incredible, lyrically sound and instrumentally brilliant. Here we go. You can't feel the heat until you hold your hand over the flame. You have to cross the line just to remember where it lays You won't know your worth now, son, until you take a hit Now! 9.30, and that's the choice of our guest, Nick Haramboulos. And uh, we had someone saying, hi, Michelle, please spell Nick's surname. It's an excellent interview. It's fascinating. So let me just tell you, his name is spelt N-I-C. And the surname is H-A-R-A-L-A-M-B-O-U-S. Nick Haralambus. I think I've been saying it wrong. But we'll get there in a moment. First, it's time for Zai. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. So if your name's Itumaling and you're a dietitian from Pretoria West Hospital, well, you won last week's Dr. Phil question. Well done. And uh, the question has gone out from our guest, Nick Haralambus. And just to spell his name again, N-I-C-H-A-R-A-L-A-M-B-O-U-S. And he's the author of a fabulous book, How to Start a Side Hustle. Nick, I have to say one of the things I loved about this book is, A, it's super easy to read. That's always just great. B, it's super understandable and it talks to all sorts of stuff. But C, it also has a massively high level of um 
what I suppose you could call emotional intelligence. So this is not a book that says you've got to go from A to B to C. These are your spreadsheets. This is how your spreadsheet looks. This is a book that says we marry our ideas. We forget that half of marriages end in divorce. Don't marry your idea or your business. And then you go... If you feel fat, tired, drained, unhealthy, fearful, stressed out, suffer from panic attacks because of your business, do yourself a favor and consider walking the beep away. Brilliant. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I wish that I could say that it was just emotional intelligence, but that is from literally two decades of suffering. Um, (laughs) My first book, which I think we'll talk about later, is called Do Fail, Learn, Repeat. And in that book, I chronicled my 10 years of business failures, back-to-back-to-back failures. And that's what it takes. That's the side of the story that we don't see. We all read about Elon Musk, but we don't read that he sleeps at his factory. He Mm. is unhealthy. He's mentally under strain all the time. And it's the same for any high-achieving person. They suffer. There is a lot of suffering that goes along with success, and we glorify the success, but we ignore the suffering. And the, the sad truth about building businesses is that there is significantly more suffering that leads to failure than suffering that leads to success, and we never deal with the failure. So part of what I wanted to do with this book was help people understand that successful businesses are built before you launch the business. And that's why the first half of my book is about your mindset and your yes, lifestyle. Exactly. It's not yeah. about the business. It's not about your idea. So, Nick, I mean, you talk about failure a lot in this book, and you mentioned your first book, which is so much about, as you say, measuring your failure and ultimately creating a success out of that measurement in its own way. Mm. But we do, we've been told again and again and again, you know, fail fast and all of that kind of stuff. But there, there's other stuff to failing that shouldn't be such a massive issue, or it is an issue, but it's 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 terrifying because you 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 know you're putting your money into this hustle, you're putting your time, your energy, your passion, mm. etc. Talk to us and try and just maybe tease that out for us a little bit more. Yeah, so um, the, I mean, the first thing I'll say is I've spent a lot of time explaining to South Africans that it's okay to seek mental assistance, like a mental coach, or in layman's terms, a psychologist. Yeah. Um, so I've spent a lot of time with my psychologist trying to decouple my self-worth from the things that I build. Hmm. And this ties back into our earlier conversation about ego. If your self-worth and your ego is tied to the success of the thing that you're building, you will inevitably be left shattered if that thing breaks. And it happened to me. Uh, One of my first startups uh, ended in a pretty bad divorce with me and my co-founder, and I was depressed for months, and it took me about two years to get over it. And I looked back after that, and I thought, what for? What for? It was just a business. It's just a thing. And only in my 30s have I started to understand that my self-worth is made up of a plethora of things, not just the success that the world sees from one business. And you and I discussed this on our initial call. People don't fundamentally care about you. You think that they do. You think that they're watching your every step. You think that they're waiting for you to fail. They're not. And if those people are in your lives, the ones that are waiting for you to fail, then they're the wrong people to be listening to. Mm. You need to find the people who I, I call, they need to be net additive, not net subtractive. And if there are people in your life that are net subtractive, you need to start cutting them out because this fear of failure emerges from what will people think? How will they act if they know I've failed? Nobody cares. Just do the thing you love to do and you will find success. Talking about the thing you love to do, um, two great guests that you've got lined up with us. Um, John Sanai, we know from the show and uh, because Mm -hmm. of his great book as well that he wrote with Iraj 
Abedian. Um, but let's start with your first guest, Rob Hope. Tell us about Rob and why you've chosen him as your first guest. So Rob and I are geek friends uh, who <laughs> met online. Um, we, we've genuinely spent maybe four or five hours physically in the same space, um, but we chat all the time online. I recently interviewed him for my podcast, and I'm just blown away by Rob's approach to life and his work. And I'll read a little bit from his bio directly because it's just so perfect. He's a designer, developer, and a maker with a passion for simple design. He says it's difficult to define what he does online, but he can honestly say that he's having a blast. And I, <laughs> I love that. And you, you'll hear now that that emerges in Rob's approach to life and work and everything. And that's why I wanted to get him on because he very much embodies the side hustle lifestyle that I'm trying to help people understand is achievable. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So are you having a blast? I am honestly having a blast. It's a it's a difficult thing to say to certain people who are unhappy in their work. Mm. But when you surround yourself with people like Nick, like you were saying, you know, the, that positive around you, you you feed off it, and you you actually start to open your eyes and realize that there's a big community of people that are trying to build side hustles, and you know there are people like ourselves. You know, we don't want nine to five jobs. Yeah. We want to work where we're motivated. And yeah, my whole day is filled with a, a big mixture, a big cocktail of just ups and downs. But you start to realize that it's about that. It's mm. about the middle. And yeah. you know, a lot of people are you know, working in the bank. And I always use that example. And I, I feel bad always picking on them. But you know, it's got such a structured plan. And you know, I'm going to save up until I retire. But for us, it's like there is no end. We're actually in the end now. The middle we're in is the peak. And we are enjoying it every single day. So I want to ask you both a question because you've you've raised something we've spoken about here on the show and off the show, not so much on the show, actually. Um, Is First of all, you're talking, Rob, about that idea of when you say the middle. It's about the finding of common ground and the finding of community. And you use the word community as well. Mm. What's really struck me lately is because of COVID probably, is how many of our communities we build um, from social media, online. And as you say, Nick, people that you've probably only met about two or three hours in the lifetime, but you've developed really strong relationships. And I can think of a couple of people like that that I know on social media that I've never actually met in the flesh. But we we seem to have connected. And it's such a weird idea because I do see them as people that I think are valuable in the world that I live in. Yeah, I mean, Michelle, for me, uh, I've been on a computer connected to the Internet and coding since I was 11 years old. Hmm. I've made some of my best friends. And in fact, my best friend in the world is someone I met through Twitter 14 years ago. Um, And we now see each other, you know, frequently and whatever. And Rob actually knows him. His name is David Perrell, and he's a professional Ferrari racing driver, amongst many other things. Um, (laughs) But I met him online, and I met Rob online. And uh, I don't actually know another way to meet people very efficiently because I've been doing it since I was 12. And I'm pretty sure it's very close to how Rob feels about the world, too. Rob, is that your space? And, and when you take us, to, take us through, then, of course, into your onepagelove.com project. Okay. So, you know, let's just break down on, on what the internet is just absolutely brilliant for, and that's just connecting people. So, you know, they say if you can create a platform online where you can connect random people 
around the world, you have created mm. magic. And for me, I've had so many crazy experiences in my life. And you can say, you know, I'm comparing it to the bank again, but you know, being a maker, a builder, I'm interacting with so many different fields. And mm, I have exactly. my one-page love. And, you know, all I do is I collect beautiful references to one-page websites. Mm. Very niche. So this is not a two-page website with a contact page. This is someone selling their service in one single long scrolling page. And by me putting that out there, curating references, other people with a similar passion started to arrive at my site and then they started to share it with their friends. And then I'm going to tell you a crazy example to just further what Nick said. Is that my, my website navigation, it, it, it didn't work very well on mobile once. And a guy in Italy mailed me and he said, Rob, I've been following your, your site for ages. And I just want to tell you that this, he's an Italian guy, very direct. He's like, your navigation is terrible. <laughs> and, and, but here is the finished code. You just wow. got to plug it in. And that exchange, we became friends for life. I, I traveled to North Italy and stayed with him and his mom in a little <laughs> village because of this exchange, because of the side project. So this is just, you know, one of the you know, numerous examples of why we, in, in the space, it's just so stimulating. It's so random. It's so creative. So, yeah. so, so you, you talk about the fact that this Italian who you'd never met sent you a mm-hmm. code, the finished code, so that your website could operate far more effectively. And yeah. this would be a question to you both, actually. Is this idea then of creative commons, of the power of... Um, creativity essentially I don't want to just say for free because it, it, it's more than that it's about an engagement a participation um, across networking I mean I might be able to give you that code but uh, you know next thing you end up staying with him in Italy so there's a whole quid pro quo we forget the power of something like creative commons maybe just talk a little bit about that Nick um, I actually would like to hand over to Rob because I want to go a little bit higher and existential when I answer <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, okay. you know, we, we, can, we can steer to, you know, privacy in this. There's so many ways we can talk about this. But for me, I'm a huge advocate of just giving away everything for free. Yeah. Um, you know, if the fact that he gave me that code with not wanting anything back, is that sort of the essence of the Internet, the, the beauty of the Internet? Um, Wikipedia just giving us such valuable information for free. Yeah. Um, you know, there are sort the donations. You know, I respect sites that need to monetize. But when you truly give away value for free online, that's where the magic happens. So I've been, you know, collecting references to single page websites since 2008. I've added 8,000 one page websites. Wow. And people, you know, they, they email me and they just say, hey, Rob, I just want to say thanks. You know, like yeah. I've, I've visited your site a lot and you've helped save me time. And I just want to say thanks. They're not asking me for anything. And that for me is just such a, a great exchange online. And again, you know, these are things I can tell guys like Nick and other guys building side projects, but someone working in a nine to five doesn't probably know that this actually happens. This exists on the internet. Internet gets bashed. Social media gets bashed. But here we are, similar people. Again, to your point, Michelle, that, you know, our niche community, when, when we start get going online, that's when we get excited. So, okay, Rob, we're going to have to say goodbye to you, sadly. Okay. But um, because we've got John's next guest, I mean, John's next, uh, Nick's next guest, John, on the line. Um, But Rob, just put out that website again for people who want to go and check it out. 
Okay, so it's onepagelove.com. That's O-N-E pagelove.com. And I just want to drop, if you put the forward slash 100 at the end, you can get 100 tips to improve your website absolutely free, just like I was saying, giving value. And you get 100 emails in 100 days, not asking for anything. That is absolutely incredible. Rob Hope, thank you so much for joining us. Onepagelove.com. And if you go dash or forward slash 100, you will get 100 tips on how to improve your website. Nick, I'm, I'm going to flag this now because I know we're going to run out of time. Sure. But Because that's how an hour works. But, <laughs> but this is what I'm going to suggest. Yeah. You, you have got this incredible project, this fund that yeah. you're running. And we aren't going to be able to talk about it in depth now, but I do Fine. want us to talk about it. And then what we will do is we will get you on the show next week, either on the Saturday or the Sunday, to talk about that particular fund. Sounds good. And at the same time, we will also be talking about Time of the Writer, which is where I will be uh, working with you quite closely. And let's uh, give that a punt as well. So, Nick, Sounds good. your second guest, John Sanai, we've, we've had him on the show a few times. He has an extraordinary book out at the moment, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in a moment. But why have you chosen John as your second guest? So John has got this incredibly interesting and um, unique perspective on the world we're in today and how to prepare for the future that is coming. Um, and every time I listen to John talk, I learn something new. So I figured that's the kind of guest that the listeners <laughs> would want to talk to. That's exactly what we want, is to learn something new. John, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Good morning. Hey, John. John, we we have spoken about your book many a time. Just uh, give the details to our audience uh, right now. Yes, Iraj, my co-author, has told me that you guys have had long extended conversations about it. The book is called Future Next. It's uh, really about reimagining the new world that we're moving towards and also becoming okay and, in fact, conquering uncertainty. And so the book takes a look at the mental state, the reimagination power that we each have, and also the responsibility we have as citizens, employees, employers, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to participate in this new future rather than sit on the sidelines and blame and shame other people for not doing that. So it's really a book about preparing for future next. So, you know, John, I absolutely loved that book because I think what struck me in it was this idea, and and I think Iraj spoke about that at one point as well, was this idea that what we think is a normal world implies that um, everything is fine. And yet, um, so we can look back at the world pre-COVID and we can say we want to go back to normal. But that wasn't normal. It was just, as you guys say in the book, familiar. Let's talk about the difference between normal and familiar and the art of reimagining. Well, you know, the thing is, Michelle, is that it's all we've known. And so as we have many of those syndromes where people want to protect their abusers, this is exactly the same thing is we want to protect all we've known. And that's really just the hmm. human state that we in. But what is also we must take into consideration is that The society we've lived in is addicted to certainty, and we make decisions of what to study, who to marry, where to work, all based on this need for certainty and safety. We're all very scared to do anything that's too much out of that comfort zone. 
Yeah. And the problem with the system over the last 100, 200 years of this linear innovation of safety, economies of scale, efficiency over every other decision-making process has made our reimagination muscle lazy yeah. and, in, and actually made it disappear. So we are all suffering from what UNESCO's Future Literacy Program calls poverty and reimagination. Yeah. And so certainty, which was necessary for the last 200 years, is now becoming something that's stopping us from reimagining. So what we have to do is very much a mental and emotional step away from what we knew in order to become more future-focused rather than old-focused. You know, many of our identities are connected to our opinions. And Nick uh, introduced me to a great quote that said, strong opinions held loosely. And this is really what we, re we require in this world right now is we don't have to keep going back to those opinions that we have held on to for so long. And, you know, some people might mock other people for being on Microsoft 95, but they've got ideas stuck in their head older than that. Yeah. And so it's really exactly. about allowing those to go so we can reimagine and look at new plausible and possible futures. So, you know, you both raise something so potent and you, you talk about this idea of you know, I suppose how certainty or the need for certainty frames us and allows and forces us to not allow kind of for an imagining. And, and with, without wanting to be punny, um, we do know that change is the only constant. And I suppose what I'm interested with you guys is how you deal with that. Because if change is the only constant, then we have to have the ability to not feel afraid or we have to have the ability to accept our fear. So how do you both do that if you're looking towards moving forward and saying, I don't have to have certainty. I know the change is something, but um, and I feel okay with it. How do you feel okay? So for me, it's about three things. It's about revealing our assumptions and biases. Yeah. Um, this is a big thing because we have biases like, for example, change is bad for business. Or when in doubt, go with what you know. Or even yeah. the optimistic biases. You know, this is so good, it's never going to fail. <laughs> and so we have to get away from these entrenched ideologies that we've been uh, sort of force-fed throughout uh, society and education. And so the first thing is to reveal these assumptions and biases. The second thing is to get this opportunity to ask new questions about your capabilities, what you want to be doing in the world, and what does your impact actually look like in this new world that we're moving into. And lastly, to reframe our possible futures. You know, you can only do that once you've revealed your assumptions, rethought your questions, and then reframe it. In my third book, F uh, Foresight, I wrote about this beautiful mix between two characteristics that gets you to become much more comfortable with uncertainty. Yeah. And the first one is curiosity, and the second one is wisdom. And curiosity is something that we've never been allowed to really practice through education because education has always been about logic and intelligence, not intuition and curiosity. Yeah. Our intuition and curiosity is very unique to us. And when we can follow this, this golden thread throughout our lives, we'll find ourselves continuously creative, innovative, collaborative, energized. And then you mix that with wisdom. And wisdom is best described by Alan Watts. He says, the knowledgeable man has to learn something new every day, but the wise man has to unlearn something new every day. <laughs> Brilliant. And it's in this unlearning com mm. combined with curiosity where you are so enthralled with what you're doing that the end result is just a bonus. And so we have 
for the longest time have only allowed ourselves dopamine hits at the result of something. Think about your kids when they are studying. You don't give them credit for studying hard. You give them credit for the A, B, or C. You don't, you know, the the whole idea of when we release dopamine has been brought about by Carol Dweck and the growth mindset. And all she's saying in that book is get your brain to enjoy challenge. And Satya Nadal got everybody in Microsoft to read this book when he started off as CEO. Mm. Nassim Taleb's Anti-Fragile is exactly the same scenario. So it's really about changing our mindsets towards challenge. So, Nick, uh, you, you hear what John has to say. What would you say? I mean, he mentions curiosity. It's something I know that you have a deep interest in as well. I certainly do. Um, I believe completely in lifelong learning. I mean, if you completely believe in lifelong learning, you can never make mistakes because it's just part of the learning in a way. Yes, absolutely. But before we forget, John is too humble to mention um, one of the things I wanted to bring him on here for. He has a masterclass that is closing very soon. There's some positions still available for exactly this, where he helps people understand how to forge this new future. You can go to his website, johnsane.com. It's john, S-A-N-E-I.com, and follow the links to book a masterclass with him and get these genius pieces of knowledge for five days in a row. So that is one of the things people should be considering doing is learning from John directly. Um, but onto the question, I agree basically with everything that John has said. Um, you know, strong opinions loosely held. If you believe one thing in when the facts change, then you believe the wrong thing. If the facts change, it's okay to change your opinion. That yeah. is how you deal with change, is you don't hold strong opinions tightly. You let them go. Um, it's not embarrassing to change your view on something. It's actually a strength that you have the ability to change your perspective on something. Um, then you mentioned the word lifelong learning. Uh, we should all be learning. We're living longer. We should be updating what we understand about the world constantly. If you believe the same things today that you believed when you were 18 and you haven't challenged them, then you have a problem. Fundamentally, <laughs> you have a problem. Um, and then the last one is we need to be proactive in life, not reactive. Mm-hmm. We need to, uh, a lot of us let life happen to us. And then we're victims. And that's just not the way that I see the world. I take control. I have agency to move, to shake, to change, to be different. Um, I'm not trapped in my life. And I don't believe that John is either. We've both chosen the paths that we're on. And we're very aware of that, not reactive to our lives. So let me, I'm going to challenge you both. Um, and we literally have a minute. So mm-hmm. you, your answer is going to have to be very short on this. But Nick, I may have to go to you, Nick, is that you and John absolutely do have agency. But you have... Um, and you said this to me the other day, you, you drew the lotto, you, you, you've, yep. you've had an environment that is, and uh, an upbringing in this country that has allowed you to be able to do so many things. For someone who has not had that um, agency or access, what would the advice be? Um, I think that regardless of whether you're born with privilege like I was or not, you still have agency. You still have the ability to learn. Learning has been democratized over the last 20 years. Everybody has access to the internet, maybe not high speed, but you can Google anything. We have more access to information in our pocket than they had when they put the first um, satellite into the space. Like there are no excuses. You always have the ability to learn, and that is something that no one can take away from you. If you choose to be inactive and not learn, that is agency. So you can choose to go forward and be different and move and change things, and that's agency, or you can choose the opposite, and that lack of choice is still agency. So I understand and I'm very well aware that I have privilege and that's why I've launched things like my slow fund, which we'll talk about next week. Um, But everybody has choice. Whether you realize it or not, you have choice. 
Nick Haralambus, thank you so much for joining us. John Sanai, thank you for being Nick's guest on this wonderful feature. The book is called How to Start a Side Hustle, a playbook for a new economy, and uh, you can catch up with that. It's 10 o'clock. It's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now. Goodbye.